Isaiah chapter 53, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the two questions that are raised at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 1, where the question is raised, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The word report in this text speaks literally of our news or our tidings. Two other English translations translate the word our message. Who hath believed our message? John Gill says in his commentary, that this is a report 
of the doctrine of the gospel. He writes, and I quote, The doctrine of the gospel is a report of love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ. It's the report of Christ himself, his person, offices, obedience, sufferings, and death, and a free and full salvation by him. It is a good report, a true and faithful one, and to be believed. And yet there are always but few that give credit to it. There were but few in the times of the prophet Isaiah that believed what he had before reported or was about to report concerning the Messiah, and but few in the times of Christ and his apostles that believed the report as well. In John chapter 12, the Apostle John draws from this verse in Isaiah 53 when he writes, beginning in verse 37, But though he, Christ, had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Oh, there were those in his day, those who were there at the time, who heard him speak, who saw his miracles. You would think it would have been easy to believe, and yet they did not. This statement by John is consistent with his report of Christ as far back as John chapter 1 and verse 5, where he writes regarding Christ, And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And a little further down in that same chapter in John's gospel, verse 11, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So the answer then to Isaiah's question, who hath believed our report, would be that precious few believed it. I wonder this morning, do you believe it? Are you among that precious few? That's really what I'm interested in this morning. As we met in the Lord's house and are gathered around his table, what I'm interested in here is how many among us here believe the report. The Lord's table, you see, is for believers. It doesn't make sense for unbelievers to partake of the Lord's table. Why would you pay tribute to a Savior you don't believe in, or perhaps you've never seen your need for? Why would you even have such a desire to partake of a table such as this? Each time we meet around this table, I read the words from 1 Corinthians 11 to stress the solemnity of the Lord's table. There is a worthiness spoken of in that chapter for partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I say each time, your worthiness is not to be discerned by how sanctified or holy you are. It's to be discerned, rather, by your faith in Christ and your sense of need in Christ. So let's look at the questions that are raised in the first verse of this very familiar and wonderful passage that points so clearly to Christ. There are two questions asked by the prophet, and we'll see in the course of this study that though the questions are different, there is actually a connection between them. 
that we will see before we're done. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Let's consider, first of all, what gives rise to these questions. What gives rise to these questions? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You'll notice in verse 2 that the verse begins with the word for. For he, Christ, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So there's a connection here given to us plainly by that first word, the word for. There's a connection here between the questions of verse 1 and the statement of verse 2. And what verse 2 conveys to us is the natural appearance of the Messiah. There's nothing about his natural appearance, you see, that would make him stand out as being recognized as the Messiah. Whenever I read this verse, a contrasting scene in Israel's history comes to my mind. It's the choice of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1 we read, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Listen to the way another translation renders verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now, you may recall from your knowledge of Old Testament history that when Saul was chosen to be king, he was, at least initially, very humble about the matter, very reluctant to even enter into such an office. He didn't boldly assert himself. Quite the contrary, he went and hid himself. So near the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, we read in verses 20 and following, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come hither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Oh, it's not hard to envision that scene, is it? You have a man that's trying to hide. 
and his humility. He's not asserting himself for this office. He is ducked down below the stuff, the baggage, so to speak. And when at last he is discovered and he's called upon to stand up, and can you imagine the impact that it would have had on the people once he stood up? My, what a king. He's taller than anyone. He has all the physical appearance of what a king ought to look like. So they thought. So Saul, by his physical appearance, became what many would have, been, would have regarded as the obvious choice to be Israel's king. He was handsome. He was tall. What Isaiah is telling us in his prophecy is that Christ was not like that. Not at all. Now, we're not given any kind of physical description of Christ in the Bible, apart, arguably, from these verses in Isaiah 53. That's one of the reasons I believe that Protestants historically have never been in favor of paintings depicting Christ. I remember reading one author who raised a good question when he said, how would you like it if someone set forth a portrait of you who had never seen you, had no idea what your physical features were, had no clue as to what you looked like, but nevertheless created a portrait of you. That in itself would be insulting. All we're told about Christ's physical appearance is that he didn't stand out from others. There are some, you know, in the world today that stand out by the way they dress. They keep up with all the latest fashion trends and spend huge sums of money to keep up with what's current. They would stand out in a crowd because of their taste for fashion. Others might stand out for the opposite reason. They're so far removed from current fashion trends that their old-fashionedness makes them stand out. Christ didn't represent either extreme. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. One of the things that I object to, I guess I could say, of Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper, is that Christ is too easy to identify. He's right there in the center. Some versions of it, I suppose, even try to put a glow about him. And yet, that wasn't the case. I suppose if an accurate depiction could be drawn, you wouldn't be able to pick him out from the others. His physical appearance then would not contribute to making the report of him believable. But there's another factor about him that would contribute even more to making the report of him to be unbelievable. For not only was his natural appearance such that he wouldn't be desirable, but there was something about him that would even lead others to despise him and reject him. So we read in verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised 
and we esteemed him not. So it wasn't as if the matter of his natural appearance made people indifferent to him. Uh, No, there was actually a hatred for him. He was despised and esteemed not. And you see the emphasis that verse 3 places on Christ being despised. The word is mentioned twice, giving it emphasis. He is despised and rejected of men. And then later in the verse, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the word despised is given to us twice And this verse comes from a Hebrew word, which means literally that he was contemptible. Another form of the same word means that he was vile or worthless. And so we can conclude that not only did his natural appearance make the report of him unbelievable, but also the spiritual condition of those he came to made him despicable. So much so that not only would he not be esteemed in any positive sense, but in the words of verse 4, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And of course, you are aware of the gospel accounts that give the narration of the whole crowd calling out for him to be crucified. That entire crowd who just a couple of days earlier accompanied him into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, so to speak, would in just a short time turn on him and call for him to be stricken and done away with. I remember Ian Paisley once making the remark, don't ever trust the crowd, they're too fickle. And indeed, that certainly turned out to be the case with Christ and that crowd. Now, if you were reading Isaiah 53 for the very first time, and you had never read the New Testament scriptures, you would certainly come away with the impression that the subject of Isaiah's prophecy must be a terrible person. What could such a person have done to bring upon himself such contempt and such bitter hatred? And then when you do read the New Testament and you actually learn of Christ and you hear his teaching and you behold his miracles and you see him going about doing good, it leads you to wonder and astonishment. Why would they treat such a person the way they did? Why would they make such an effort to persuade the Roman authorities to crucify him? And the answer to such an inquiry has to be found in the spiritual condition of the people who were on hand at the time of Christ's earthly ministry. But let's note from Isaiah 53 that the prophet doesn't merely describe the people of that time. What he writes pertains to all men of every generation throughout time. When he says in verse 6, all we, and would you notice there that he includes himself? He doesn't say, all they like sheep have gone astray. No, uh, he, he includes himself in the very indictments that he's bringing ultimately on the human race. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We were having a discussion at Sunday school this morning 
about the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what did that amount to? But turning to their own way. Okay, going astray, turning from their own way. I won't have anyone rule over me. I shall be as God unto myself. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. I'll decide what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And my, don't you have uh, that very phenomenon displayed throughout the world today. Um, Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis are so vindicated by the culture in which we live. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans broadens the application to all men generally when he writes, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And I haven't read the full description, but I've certainly read enough in verses 10 to 12 that you get the picture of the spiritual condition of the natural man. And in that section of Romans, Paul has been reasoning toward a conclusion. He first establishes the guilt of the Gentiles. He then establishes the guilt of the Jews. His conclusion of the whole matter is given to us in verse 19 in Romans 3, where he writes, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Oh, it is true, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Why then is the report of Isaiah not believed? Well, the answer is twofold. It's not believed because of the natural appearance of the Messiah, and it's not believed because of the spiritual condition of the people. Before moving on to my next and final point, I must pause here to raise the question, have I been describing you in your unsaved condition? And anyone that would say no to that question, no, preacher, I've never been the way Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53 or the way that Paul describes in Romans 3. If that is your mindset, if that is your attitude, please don't partake of these elements. They're not meant for you. You only add to your guilt by making a mockery of this ordinance established by God. The table, this table is for sinners. This table is for those who, by the grace of God, can say, yes, Isaiah describes me in my unsaved condition. I had gone astray. I had turned to my own way. I had no esteem for Christ, but rather by my nature as a sinner, despised him and esteemed him, smitten of God and afflicted. I know I've done this before, but it's been a little while. I've shared with you how when I used to go to the Wheeler Mission downtown, 
I would perform a miracle right in front of them. And I would announce it. I'm going to perform a miracle right here in front of you. It is every bit as spectacular as the Lord turning water to wine. And then I take my finger and I scan across uh, the whole audience and I let people know this is my accusing finger now. And I can point it anywhere. I can point it uh, to my friends. I can point it at my spouse. I can point it at my boss. We all point it there, don't we? I can point it at the government, another favorite target of our accusing fingers. But you'll notice that uh, wherever I point it, it is always pointing away from me. And now here comes the miracle. And it's nothing short of miraculous by the grace of God that I can take the accusing, pointing finger and I can point it at myself and I can say, I'm the sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. Even as Paul acknowledged himself to be. I wonder this morning, is that a miracle you can perform? Is that something you can do? Do you see yourself that way? So we've considered what gives rise to the questions, who hath believed the report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Let's consider next and finally, what must happen for the report to become credible? What must happen for Isaiah's report, or our report, as it's called, for that report to become credible. I said in my introduction that there are two questions raised in verse 1, and that the two questions are connected. Who hath believed our report? That's the first question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That's the next question. And the answer to the first question about believing the report would have to be that the ones who have believed it or the ones who do believe it are the same ones to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord, you see, is a figurative expression. It speaks of the Lord's power. In his prayer to God for Israel, in which Moses is pleading with God to continue with Israel, we find Moses reminding God in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 29, Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. Do you see the connection there between mighty power and stretched out arm? That stretched out arm is emblematic, if you will, for mighty power, for omnipotence. So you see here just one in that verse in Deuteronomy, uh, one of many instances when the figure of speech, the arm of the Lord, is used to describe God's mighty power. So back in Isaiah 53, the ones who have believed the report of Christ and the report of the doctrine of Christ are the ones that you could say have experienced supernatural and almighty power, even the power of the new birth. Paul speaks of this mighty power in his prayer for the saints at Ephesus when he writes in Ephesians 
chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, of the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Take note of that, okay? His power to usward who believe. There is a connection between his power to us and our believing. And this power, Paul goes on to describe, is according to the working of his mighty power. Well, how mighty is that power? Paul answers that for us too. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Nothing short of resurrection power is required to enable a sinner to believe the report of Christ. The new birth, which is nothing short of spiritual resurrection, is what enables a believer to be a believer. The same power, Paul writes, that raised Christ from the dead has raised sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. And how can you tell who those believers are? Well, it's really not too difficult. They're the ones who actually do believe the report. They believe Isaiah's report. I'd go a step further and say they're the ones that see God's hand and God's purpose in the sufferings of Christ. They recognize the hand of God in Christ's sufferings. Besides being an amazing passage, you see, in terms of what Isaiah 53 predicts prophetically, it's also an amazing passage to show the hand of God in Christ's sufferings. You see, Christ was not simply apprehended and dealt with cruelly by those who were his enemies. No, it is, you'll notice it, It is, it was God himself who is said to have smitten him and afflicted him. Smitten of God and afflicted. (coughs) We read in verse 4, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 6, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Verse 10, who hath believed thy report, the prophet asks. And the answer is the ones that see the Lord's hand in Christ's sufferings, the the ones that recognize that God himself has charged his son with our sins and has smitten and afflicted him and bruised him and put him to grief. God the Father has done this. He takes the credit for it in Isaiah 53. Peter expresses God's hands in his son's suffering and death when he says in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
Oh, Peter is not suggesting that because this was done in accordance with God's foreknowledge and determinate counsel that the ones who committed the actual crime were off the hook. Uh, No, we are responsible for our sins, and so were they. But in his plan of redemption, this was ordained in eternity past. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And hence we find Christ referred to in the book of Revelation as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This wasn't something that happened accidentally, folks. This was determined even before the world was created. But not only do the believers in Isaiah's report see the Lord's hand in the sufferings of Christ, but they also see the Lord's purpose behind those sufferings. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And why? Well, the next statement answers the question and shows us the purpose behind it all. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verses 4 and 5. God has smitten and afflicted his son. God has bruised and wounded and chastised his son. God has put his son to grief. Why? Well, simply put, for our salvation. Notice the words of verses 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Here is how salvation is accomplished. God's justice is satisfied. This is the meaning of Christ being the propitiation for our sins. He has satisfied the just claims of the law against sinners for their sins. And so Isaiah could continue in verse 11 by saying, On behalf of God, that by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Oh, here then is the doctrine of justification by faith, found even in the Old Testament. We shouldn't regard that as unusual. Paul draws from David and Abraham when he proves the doctrine in Romans chapter 4. And here here we find mention of it made (coughs) in verse 11 of Isaiah 53. Christ satisfies justice And by believing the report about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the sinner becomes justified. The sinner becomes a saint. And so again, I wonder this morning, and we're drawing our study now to a close. Have you believed our report? Interesting to note, isn't it, that it's called 
our report, once we've been wrought upon by the Spirit of God so that we believe the report, we not only believe it, we own it. It's ours. We affirm it. We live by it. We praise God for it. Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you then, enabling you to acknowledge your own sins and the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done? If so, this communion table is for you. This communion table, you see, affords you the opportunity to say to God and to Christ the refrain from that hymn in our hymn book, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. What a blessing to be able to say to God and to Christ this morning, that by thy grace and because of thine almighty power, O Lord, I believe the report of Christ, and I thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Let's close then in prayer, shall we, before the elements are distributed. <clears throat> Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for this glorious report brought forth by Isaiah pertaining to Christ as to who he is and to what he's done. Lord, we take no credit for believing it. If left to ourselves, we would never have believed it. If left to ourselves, we would very much fall into that category of Jews in Christ's day who esteemed him not but rejected him. We thank thee, Lord, that by thine almighty grace and power we have been enabled to esteem him very highly and to accept him. We pray, therefore, dear Lord, as we distribute these elements now, and remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we be fully engaged by faith in worship, in which we do indeed pledge to thee that we do believe, and we will believe, that Jesus died for our sins. So hear our prayers, dear God, and draw near to us now around this communion table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.